1: Ladies and gentlemen, I am Dustin Gold. Welcome to the Dustin Gold Standard right here on Payne dot tv slash gold i hope everyone had a fantastic thanksgiving folks my wife said no you can't record the day before thanksgiving which was my mother's birthday or on thanksgiving so i didn't get to do it but today it is friday night going into saturday morning it is black friday so i decided to bring my father on the show who is nigerian so it makes sense for this to be black (laughs) friday (laughs) 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 so it's quite interesting folks you've all been following the ongoing stories of my son william being born and it's amazing that handsome little fella brought together my mom and my dad who are divorced they've been together on a few occasions uh over the last several years but it was pretty amazing to see them my mom did not kill my father my father attempted to kill my mother but that did not happen The car wouldn't start. (laughs) The car wouldn't start. All right, so my father's here with me today. I always talk shit about him on this show. No, and then we did the uh, Overcoming Adversity episode, my wife and I's journey surviving the Rockefeller Medical Industrial Complex of the hospital, and I told you guys that name came from my father, Overcoming Adversity. So today we're going to talk a little bit about his uh, history as a police officer, uh as a private investigator i've mentioned to you many times in the show that is where i sort of picked up on picking apart these stories and going into the history of eugenics and technocracy and transhumanism was uh growing up driving around with him when i was two years old stopping at cop bars uh and polish clubs and italian clubs where they would shoot darts so how are you today father
2: good that's pretty good that wasn't bullshit either that that was true what you just said (laughs) yeah but i used to leave you in the car (laughs)
1: <laughs> for, for like five hours
2: because <laughs> I didn't want you to see anything that we were doing It's very secretive Well, I re- it was a closed society
1: well I remember this one bar it's called Rudy's it's still around I think but not the same thing anymore but that's where a lot of Yalies from Yale University hung out a lot of the cops yep. and there was a guy named Hank there who had long hair he was like a, a hippie he had a piece of peyote around his neck and yep. he had a dog named Badger and we used to feed it cheese I remember yep. that
2: and yeah, and he owned uh contiguous to uh Rudy's uh his own Mexican food restaurant Poco loco so um uh Hank uh lived up on a hill in uh, Wallingford a rural part of Connecticut um not too far from where we lived in also a fairly rural part of Connecticut but Hank would hunt deer and uh grow corn and but he could put a roof on a house, he could cook enchiladas, he can do, uh, you know, sell you uh, like a quarter gram of friggin' cocaine. He could do anything that uh, a guy would want done back in those days. He's a very all-around kind of guy, a woodsman, a ladies' man. Uh, pretty interesting cat I had a lot of really crazy interesting friends
1: so he was a uh, Mexican before there were Mexicans here in the United States
2: he, he was one of the first ones that came in across the border uh, undetected
1: <laughs> <laughs> so that was a crazy place now I want to go back because um, I, I've mentioned to the audience before was it late 70s early 80s uh, you were a cop and attempted to take on city hall, so it's it's quite interesting because we talk a lot about uh, the show local politics and stop focusing on uh, federal politics, national politics, and then I told the story about how I attempted to take on city hall for a two year period in my late twenties, uh, but you did it uh, when you were a cop, so I wanted to talk a little bit about that story. Um, well,
2: I went on the job in 1974. Um, I was uh, 23 years old. I turned 24 while we were in the academy. At that time, police work was um, a very sought-after career, at least around where I lived in New Haven, with Yale, and then with all of the the ghetto type of areas. There, it was fairly high crime uh, urban. Area that had pockets of wealth, and then obviously Yale University, where Supreme Court justices and presidents of the United States to be walked around in, in and out of bars. Um, it was a very interesting place. Um, I believe that there were 600 applicants for my class, and there were 35 of us that made it. That's that's how, uh That's how difficult it was maybe to become a cop, but a lot of it was politics. So based on ethnicity, um, certain of the police commissioners would have a certain number of picks for the blacks, for the Jews, for the Italians. Uh, And oftentimes you would almost need to have gone through someone who knew someone or you knew someone or whatever to make it through the the oral part Of the police exam was the part where the politics snuck in long story short I made it because a friend of mine knew a Jewish guy and I'm half Jewish half Italian that owned a hotel and was on the board of police commissioners and they needed another Jew or two to fill their quota and uh, anyway I I I was on the job I loved the job I was a great I thought a great cop I got commendations I I really Enjoyed what I was doing that came and I and I volunteered to work in probably one of the busiest um, um, uh, pockets of crime called the Hill Section uh, of New Haven. Uh, I had a regular car there after my um, two rookie years and uh, I was doing really well. The thing that I started to learn, though, as I got older, so by this time I'm 26, 27 years old and on the job about three years, most of the guys who trained us when we first came on, my class was uh, was 35, guys, 35 cops, but we had the first women police officers, so we were followed by the news media. We had about six girls, um, five or six girls, so the, all the local news media followed us during our training, uh, to our physical training, and some of... Um, our classroom and this and that, focusing on the fact that women could become cops. The other thing my class was was the first class that had a predominantly college-educated group of people. Though we were physical and strong, um, there were no little wimps. Even the women were okay. But we were trained by a group of cops that came on the job 25 and 30 years earlier, post-World War Two, and these were big, giant, physical men, not necessarily able or capable readily of writing a, a search warrant, uh, uh, report writing, this or that. A lot of their stuff was knowing the street, knowing the people, using the – a nightstick we had a nightstick in a blackjack at the time uh mace mace had just kind of come about but we never had tasers we didn't have body cams or any of that stuff and uh, so we learned from them until so it was kind of a pretty much of a physical uh police pol- policing now with my class injecting into the 400 and 15-person New Haven Police Department was a group of 35 guys that were quote-unquote college-educated, guys and women. So it kind of created a new environment for the older people. And those who were already supervisors, captains, lieutenants, and sergeants, many of them had come from that older group. And so they were a little bit intimidated maybe by the—we had one guy— uh he he ended up leaving the job and became a lawyer um uh, you know he just left after like four months his name is wick chambers they believe that he just infiltrated he he was a yale guy okay so he was a yale grad and he was there he wanted to be a new haven cop you know that how does that make sense but (laughs)
1: long
2: story short there was camaraderie and there was trust on and uh, everything went along quite well, but I started to realize, uh, probably by my third year, that there were a number of mopes, idiots, uh, political uh, hacks that were promoted to the positions of sergeant and lieutenant that you really did not want to be led by. Put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, an incident occurred in the hill section where i live on a real hot humid august night maybe six seven o'clock at night still light out but this was a, like the most dangerous part of town or whatever and it came in as a man with a shotgun man with a shotgun um running from a house and long story short i had a um a reserve officer reserve officers are cops who are like they're not cops. They're trainees. They don't have guns or anything. They wear the uniform. They want to become cops, and they get get a chance to ride along with a police officer and and learn a lot of things. and And at some point in time, they hope to make the police department. I had one of those fellows with me in my car, and another of my uh, uh, co uh, uh, cop buddies. Uh, he had one also. So we race over to this location, um, 19 Baldwin Street, and lo and behold. Hot, humid, uh, all block neighborhood. Uh, uh there's a pickup truck there, and just as I get there, with lights and siren on, I see an older gentleman just jumping into this pickup truck. Old, an old pickup truck. God, it must have been 1950 something, pickup truck. And uh I run over to the truck and I reach in and I could tell the guy was drunk, but long story short, I don't know if this is the guy with the shotgun or not. We we, we don't know that. Meanwhile, the street starts filling up with people. They're all coming out into the street and starting to surround us. By coincidence, as probably three police cars arrive, but of the three, two of us had, we, we always ride one guy and only one guy in a car, but because we had reserve officers, now all of a sudden there's five or six uniformed bodies. They all happen to be white. So now we have all the black people that live in the neighborhood. We got the black guy, Mr. Coger, in the pickup truck. And we don't know if he has a gun. Meanwhile, I reach into the truck. I'm telling the guy, stop the truck, stop the truck, stop the truck. He won't stop the truck. He starts to drive away. I reach in. I reach through the wheel. I pull the keys out of the ignition. The truck stops. Now I figure this guy, something's up. I open the door. struggle. I end up pulling him out of the truck. He smashes his head on the curb and lays there like he's dead, unconscious. Now the crowd around me goes co- totally, completely bananas. By this time, we got 30 or 40. We're surrounded. It looks like a movie, you know, like, uh, you know, like well, it you know, looks
1: like uh, anything we've seen in the last few
0: years like since Raymar, the rise of Black Lives Matter. Raymar,
2: the jungle, you know, like one of those deals. Okay, so.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: We still don't know anything about a shotgun. We just know that this guy resisted us. He was drunk. He was trying to drive away. Um, The complainants in these cases, oftentimes, they disappear. So after they call, unlike the technology that we have today with caller ID and this and that, now they realize, uh uh-oh, a whole bunch of cops came. The guy got in trouble. I ain't going out there and telling him thank you officer for saving my life. So they just they just disappear. So now you don't even have a complaint. You have an old man laying against the curb with his head smacked. My sergeant pulls up <clears throat> and before you know it, we're ready to go to battle. We're all we're, we're in a circle, all the cops, we're surrounded. By two or three deep, these people have kitchen utensils, forks. You know, one guy had a shovel, like a snow shovel. Friggin' August, the guy's got a snow shovel. They were all surrounding us. Now, this wasn't something that we were, like unusual or unaware of we worked in this area we knew what, what went on this you got to remember this is the 70s this is this isn't post george floyd this is like the way it was back in 1976 1977 my sergeant comes up to me and in front of all these people points his finger in my face and he says cool it cool it instead of turning around and being on our team and Telling the hood to back off this man laying here is under arrest. We're taking him in the wagon. He's going. Uh, He did not do that. Long story short, we end up getting out of there. We end up with the truck. Lo and behold, the shotgun's in the truck behind the seat. He must have put it in there just as I walked up to the truck, the shotgun. He was going to shoot somebody in that friggin house who was going out with his niece or something it was like a typical domestic drunk summertime hot humid i got a shotgun i'll blow you away somebody called the police he runs out to the truck hides his shotgun he thinks he's going to drive off we got there just in the nick of time so this is all over you drive away the guy's arrested we got the truck now I'm, I've had it up to here with this sergeant. I go back to the police station. I go out of service. You can go out of service so you're not available for radio call. I spent the next three hours writing. I think it was either three pages or five pages anyway. I turned the sergeant in. Now, it never hurt. it's, never, it's never, never been done before. A, a patrol turning in his sergeant for incompetence. Uh, lack of supervision and cowardice three (laughs) charges I get it all typed up I hang it on the book. So by this time, our shift is almost over by 12 o'clock. By the time the guys start coming back in to book off so they can get out to the bars before they close, on every bulletin board, the the detective division, detention, patrol division, is this memo hanging up, me turning in Sergeant Listro. Ah, the friggin' police department goes totally crazy. Now I'm enemy number one. So... The party starts. He turns me in. The next thing you know, uh, I get called to the chief's office. This goes on for a number of of weeks. I have a hearing. Uh, We prevail in the hearing because all of the other cops testified in my behalf. And I end up beating the city in a hearing of which I had a public hearing. The city does not like to have public hearings. They hadn't had one in, like, friggin' 20 years. I forced them to have a public hearing and embarrass themselves for the politics that they were playing. And they were only covering because he was a sergeant, I'm a patrolman. If a patrolman is allowed to turn in an incompetent, politically corrupt sergeant who doesn't know what he's doing on the street and gets scared of other people, God, we're going to have a big problem because there's 250 patrolmen on the job. Long story short... Uh, I get away with it. I think I got like two days off or whatever. Now I'm on their wanted list. I'm on the New Haven Police Department wanted list. So another there's uh, four or five months go by. Thanksgiving Day, my wife's birthday, the one that I, the, the wife that I just was with yesterday, And and this morning, uh, it's her birthday, November 23rd, 1978. I have the day off. My best friend has the day off. He's a cop also. Vietnam, three tours, special forces, hired assassin, tremendous guy. Billy Burke, we're driving to Rhode Island uh, on Thanksgiving morning at 5 o'clock in the morning to surprise our family and buy these giant six, eight, nine-pound lobsters. There's a commercial lobster house there, this and that. We're going to bring them back home, and our our respective families are making turkey dinner and this and that, and we're going to give our wives these big, giant turkeys. I mean, these big, giant uh, lobsters to put on the table with the turkeys. As we're driving on the highway, the gun goes off. My gun, not my police department gun, my gun goes off, and the bullet goes in my hand. Out here, under my car seat, lands in the floorboard of my of my car. My hand's bleeding, but I'm fine and alive. That starts a whole new investigation by the police department. That's that's when they said, "Okay, it's Thanksgiving Day." <laughs> the the Connecticut State Police. It happened on the highway. Uh, I was perfectly fine. Fortunately, didn't blow my friggin' hand off but they had to call the New Haven Police Department to make sure that me and Bill were cops because we got a gun, a guy got shot, we tell him we're cops, uh, we show him identification, but they called the police department. The police department said, oh, Lou Gold, we're finally going to get him now. <laughs> Thanksgiving Day, they launch a major internal affairs investigation. They send out three detectives 40 miles from the city of New Haven where I'm a cop, searching all over for bank robberies, holdups, gun uh, reports, and this and that, trying to get me to get even with (laughs) me for what I did to the sergeant months earlier and embarrassed the police department. This is the politics of the job at the time. The city of New Haven at that time was run by a big Yale guy. He was the, um, the mayor, Frank Logue. Okay, so everything and anything was run through the Democratic Party at that time. Uh, Yale was all Democratic. The chief, who was elected, uh, who was uh, put in a position at that time, Ed Marone, who I used to be uh, very good friends with, uh, he was got to do everything that he's told to do. And bango, they this investigation is launched. It goes on for. Uh, well, it actually goes on for almost a month, but the very next day I go back to work. I have a tube in my hand for drainage. Um, I cannot work as in patrol, so I work in CCS, the complaint section, answering phones. But my lovely wife that I was with today, by total coincidence, on my birthday two months earlier, a new uh, device had come out on the market called a micro cassette recorder. You may, may or may not remember them, but they had the little tapes. And uh, she bought me one for, for, for my birthday. And that morning when I'm leaving to go to work, she used to call me honey back then. She said, honey, make sure you bring your tape recorder with you. <laughs> I said, why? She says, well, I have a funny feeling when you go to work tomorrow, uh, this morning, because they let me work the day shift. When they go to work this morning, they're going to start asking you questions. Sure, shit, I wasn't at work for more than one hour the sergeant from uh, Sergeant Klintz from uh, Internal Affairs comes up to the complaint section. That's where you answer phones and dispatch police cars and everything. And he said, I'm ordering you down to Internal Affairs. I said, oh, my God. I didn't even know how to turn the friggin' tape recorder on. I turned the tape recorder on. And I said, I have a right to remain silent, this and that, blah, 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 blah. He says, I'm ordering you. I said, well, you can order whoever you want, blah, blah, blah. From that point on for the next three weeks, every meeting, every conversation I had with the chief of police, both on the phone, because in Connecticut you only need one-party permission at that time to tape record. And in person, I would put the tape recorder on the desk. I taped every single conversation I had. Every time they tried to double-team me and uh, do this and do that, try to force me to give them a statement. We already gave a statement to the state police. You know, me and Bill, we told them what happened. They tried to do everything they could to flim flim me out of a job i said do whatever you want they finally had a, i made them have another public hearing they fired me they fired me within a matter of four hours uh for insubordination i was insubordinate because i wouldn't give the chief of police a statement about something that he had no business knowing about or having to know about wasn't in his jurisdiction i wasn't on duty five years go by we follow the federal um uh, a federal lawsuit in, uh, in New Haven jurisdiction, Judge Ellen Burns. And because of all those tapes, because the city of New Haven ultimately had to concede that every single one of those tape-recorded conversations and orders that I was given, they had to concede that they were true and accurately recorded and that what the city of New Haven did was unlawful and unconstitutional They had no right to order me to give them a statement. I was found to be not guilty without even a jury trial it was in summary judgment the judge decided that uh, the city uh, uh, unconstitutionally uh, discharged me so that was like by that time it was um 1985 by the time that I we ultimately had the federal trial um That whole lesson for me, at that time, I was 35 years old. Dustin was four years old. Um, My daughter was two years old. But by age 35, and probably when I got fired by age 29, I had realized that the bureaucracy and administrative world in which i thought i wanted to make a career and i love police work i i do it today i love the camaraderie i love the guys i love the challenge and this and that it's changed so much now you would never want to be a cop now you you can't get backed up there's no qualified qualified immunity you have nothing protecting you it's it's very 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 sad that's why the crime is so high it's cops just don't intelligently so there's no proactive policing any longer and that's really dangerous for a lot of people including the cops but uh i learned at a very early age that um you really don't want to put yourself in a position where the people who control your destiny are political hacks and bureaucrats and people who have they're playing with the house's money it doesn't cost them anything to sue you or fire you there's no personal ramifications for them or against them. It doesn't cost them any money. Uh, so they just fire you or demote you. They don't give a shit whether you win or you lose somewhere down the line as long as they get rid of you. Um, and that was my lesson. And that and that forced me into... I've been working for myself now for the last 40, 45 years. My clients are lawyers and other people. I pick and choose who I, I will work for. Um, I, I'm probably without exaggerating and being cocky but i think i'm 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 the best at what i do but i think that lesson that i learned early on through the police department um situation it solidified in my mind that you do not want to put yourself in that position and i think a lot of it you know rubbed off on my son because he you know he kind of saw a lot and associated with a lot of my friends most of whom were cops many of whom were lawyers afterwards but you realize hey if you can figure out a way to to do, do something on your own. It's a lot of work, a lot of effort, a lot of commitment, a lot of investment. Uh, there's ups and downs in this and that, but at least you don't have the situation where someone can take your, some political hack crony crumb twerp can take your life, your career, your family, and your money and your mortgage away with a snap of a finger. And And to learn that, when you're young is a very important lesson because if, if I had had 25 or 30 years invested in the police department at the time and that happened, you know, uh, that would have made a hell of a lot more, done a lot more damage to me and my family than it would have when you're 29, you have money in the bank and you're,
1: and you're healthy and, and cool and handsome and you have a lot of women. Well, I mean, yeah, but I I think, you know, you talk about the bureaucracy being able to snap their fingers. That's whether you're working in the so-called public sector or the private sector. And then look at what just happened over the last two and a half years. You had bureaucrats at the highest levels in the United States government who snapped their fingers, pushed all these edicts down, and then people end up getting fired from their job or having to go get uh, a COVID jab uh with with the threat of them losing their job and again if you're 45 50 60 the closer you are to retirement or you know if you have kids that you're saving money for for college or you've got a mortgage to pay i know a lot of people that end up having to get jabbed and boosted because in their mind they didn't have a choice either their family was going to end up living in a tent and your self-esteem
2: is it's you think of yourself a certain way that you have values and principles